This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. According to Wharton Finance Professor Richard J. Herring, more than half of the lending to households over the last five to six years has come from the securitization market, not from banks' balance sheets. For that reason, Herring and Alan Levinson, founder and principal of Credit Risk Advisors, says that the Obama administration's efforts to resuscitate the ailing economy should be focused not only on restoring bank lending, but also on enabling the flow of securitizations. This can be accomplished through the establishment of a private sector oversight committee that reflects the full range of stakeholders in the securitization process, a market-based solution costing taxpayers nothing, they argue. Uh, Dick, Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Glad to be here. A really good starting point, perhaps, might be uh, for us to look at what exactly securitization means and how did it come to become so critical a part of credit markets. Uh, Dick, would you want to start? I think Alan is actually the perfect person to start it out because he tried starting securitization about 10 years before it actually happened. There you go, Alan. Take it away. Financial institutions do a variety of things. Um, Some of the things they do involve having a balance sheet where they invest in assets that they create or they buy from others and hold them for a period of time. But financial institutions are unique originators of assets. They know borrowers. They have ongoing dialogues with borrowers ranging from very big companies down to individual consumers. And what they are able to do is to create assets in the form of loans to these various types of borrowers. Now, if an institution has the ability to create loans, they may find, just like in many other places in life, that a manufacturer can create more of something than they want to consume. It's easy to imagine a farm cooperative growing more oranges than they want to eat. It's easy to imagine a country building more good cars than they consume in the country. And so what you want to do is to take these good things that you create and essentially sell them to other people. So the concept of creating loans and selling those loans to investors who have capital makes a lot of sense. So in our society, we were able to grow our economy much more quickly. And this became very, very evident through the 1990s and also in the current decade that good originators of assets created loan assets of all sorts in excess of what they could comfortably hold on their own balance sheets. And they took these assets and through the securitization process, created very attractive investments for pension funds and other types of institutional investors. So where we wound up was that securitization was a tool that very efficiently allowed capital to flow from end investors back to borrowers who genuinely needed the money. And the securitization process as a tool worked very well for much of this time in many cases and worked very badly when it was abused. So what we have now is a circumstance where we've seen for the last two or three years serious abuse of the securitization process, which has caused meaningful harm to investors of various sorts and to the underlying financial institutions. And what we'd like to try and do through our proposals, is to allow the securitization process to regain the credibility that it needs with investors so that new securitizations can get done, which will allow investors to invest again and allow borrowers to have access to credit that we've all become accustomed to in recent years and doesn't exist right now because of the failure of the securitization market. 
Interestingly enough, historically, uh, it's almost redoing the origination of privately sponsored securitizations. This is an innovation that actually began in the government sector with uh, Fannie Mae when they were a government agency, and they were able to guarantee the creditworthiness of the securities they produced, and uh, the private sector had to figure out a way to substitute for that government guarantee, and uh, Ellen, of course, was part of uh, a group of people who figured out uh, substitutes, and uh, we have to sort of go back to first principles and see how to recreate that confidence again. I think the key to the process is to create an environment where investors can genuinely evaluate the risk and the opportunities that they're given to invest, the various instruments that are offered to them, and have confidence that their analysis of the risk is consistent with what the underlying risk will turn out to be. There are no investments that are risk-free, but Responsible instruments allow responsible investors to evaluate the risk. The problem in recent times was that investors were misled. Before we talk about the, 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 the solutions that, that you have come up with, and we'll get to that in a minute, I wonder if you could tell me uh, from each of your perspectives some of the main factors why securitization got debased. Uh, what were the main problems that led to that happening? Well, there are um, micro and macro factors involved. Um, There are a number of people who have have noted that apart from the details of it being securitization and uh, it having spread so rapidly globally, it's not all that different from a number of uh, way too many banking crises we've had over the last two or 300 years. And it usually begins with um, a, uh, a long, placid period that enables people to feel uh, extraordinarily confident about the future and to believe that without taking more risk consciously, they can take more leverage, they can reach for assets they would not have uh, ordinarily taken on because um, we actually had a name for it, in this case, the great moderation, um, that, that things are different now, which is probably the um, most dangerous set of words in the English language. And um, we had a very placid period during the uh, uh, early days of the new millennium. It was a very shallow recession. Some people don't even count it as a real recession. And um, both volatility and credit spreads were at at absolute minimums. The spread between a U.S. Treasury and a, a junk bond was about 1 to 200 basis points, which was really pricing in perfection. Um, And in that kind of environment, institutions that were being pressed for returns were willing to reach hard. Now, an interesting uh, aspect of it from the U.S. point of view is that regulation inadvertently kind of created a situation where this was more likely to happen. It went back to the 1930s when the U.S. government made use of the ratings agencies Uh, both state governments and uh, the federal government, to um, regulate institutions, both with regard to the quality of assets they had to hold and with regard to the, um, uh, in some cases, uh, what they had to hold to be regarded as a particular kind of institution. This led to a lot of pressure for grade inflation on the part of uh, investors because they wanted to get... uh, both very high returns and very high uh, grades for creditworthiness. Uh, it's, of course, been made much worse by uh, the Basel Agreement, which will uh, actually uh, uh, 
create bank capital charges based on ratings, at least in one version of it. Um, it was also made worse by the um, – and, and a good example of the law of unintended consequences by the Europeans who um, forced the U.S. investment banks to voluntarily create um, uh, consolidated regulated entities under Basel II principles. And um, they were to do it under the auspices of the SEC, which it had – no experience at all in doing such a thing, and as far as we know, never did figure out quite how to do it very well. But when the investment banks looked at the asset side of their portfolio using internal models and using five years of very placid data, they decided that um, they had almost no risk at all. And so their uh, leverages shot up from 10 to 15 uh, percent to uh, over 30 percent, which meant that they were really much more vulnerable to increased volatility in the market. And then the other thing that, that really can't be overlooked is the um, pressure of Congress on Freddie May and Fannie Mae, uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, uh, to increase the flow of credit to low-income um, uh, borrowers. Uh, now, this in itself is perhaps a good thing to do, but it's probably the wrong tool to use because you really don't want to give greater leverage to people who already have volatile incomes. It should be in the form of grants for equity, but they chose not to do that. Freddie and Fannie made a deal with their regulators that they could actually satisfy that uh, requirement by buying AAA tranches of subprime securitizations. So you had a not very discriminating buyer that ended up owning about 50% of the market, which led to an increasing supply of really shoddily produced products, uh, which is, I guess, a, a spin I would put on what Alan was saying, that uh, what had worked very well before uh, broke down because the uh, incentives were so strong. Um, we used to believe that reputation was a sufficient constraint on ratings agencies to uh, keep them uh, doing an honest job of things. But um, by the time of the peak of the subprime market, uh, some of these agencies were making uh, as much as 50% of their profits in rating this kind of debt. And it, it was worse than that because in rating a corporate bond, um, Corporations will come to the market from time to time, but they don't have the capacity to bring huge amounts of money to a rating agency. In the case of subprime debt, there were a few players that had literally the capacity to bring uh, billions of dollars of, of revenue to these agencies. And um, it, it uh, strained one's belief in reputation, shall we say. If I can just add one point, I, I think Dick just did an excellent job of uh, outlining really the economic environment and the key financial aspects to it. He alluded to the fact that there were also some issues that have more to do with human behavior and human nature. One of the key things here is that the securitization process requires a large number of different types of institutional service providers. You have some institution that makes the original loans, but then after that you have lawyers and accountants involved. You clearly have the rating agencies involved. In some cases, you have monoline insurers or other credit guarantors involved. And then you have an underwriter who brings all this together and brings it to institutional investors. Now, 
if I can draw an analogy, if you went back to the early days of manufacturing cars or airplanes, the manufacturers of each part would want to be very, very careful to make sure their part was made well. But they'd also want to be absolutely certain that the car or airplane it was put into was still safe, that if anything failed, they wouldn't be associated with that bad vehicle. But as time goes on and you take for granted the way the manufacturing process works, everyone focuses on their own little piece and spends very little time worrying about whether the other people do their job well. You simply take it for granted. So what we found in the creation of, pardon the pun, a securitization vehicle was that each service provider perhaps did a very honest job on their own piece. But even if they just looked a little bit, they might have noticed that some of the other things just didn't smell exactly right. So maybe the originator wasn't really being honest about the actual credit quality of the borrower. Or maybe the rating agencies were making assumptions that didn't really fit with what we could see about the collateral here, but that's the rating agency's job, not mine. And so everyone sort of took for granted the other people were doing things well. And ironically, it was the very success of the securitization product that investors no longer looked skeptically at securitizations, but rather accepted the fact that these things were all put together by credible professionals who were being very honest and very rigorous, we got to a point where bad things were able to get in. And unfortunately, we see in many types of markets that the bad often drives out the good. And that's really what has happened in significant parts of the securitization market over the last two years or three years. We believe that we can recreate a market where there's a higher degree of discipline on the part of each of these service providers, and that can help solve the problem. By the way, one of the service providers that also took a lot of things for granted were the regulators themselves. They also didn't blow the whistle and notice the things that were wrong. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, analysis of, of what went wrong and the fact that this has led pretty much to a, to a freezing of the securitization market. Uh, talking about possible solutions and restoring confidence. Uh, the Obama administration has just come out with its recommendations uh, for, for how uh, the whole uh, uh, regulatory process should be reformed. To what degree are the problems that you're seeing in the market, uh, to what degree have they been addressed by these uh, recommendations, do you think? Well, until now, the Obama administration is focused largely on uh, what were called toxic assets, but now are legacy assets that uh, are the residual of, of the bad securitizations. Um, but uh, while it's necessary to deal with those assets in the sense of recapitalizing banks, um, and I think they've done it in a very inefficient way, um, they've sort of lost sight of the fact that the real objective of this game is is – not only restoring bank lending, but even more importantly, restoring the flow of securitizations. Because um, more than half of, of the lending to households over the last, what, five to six years has come from the securitization market, not from bank balance sheets. Since 2001, a majority has come from the securitization market. And there's no prospect of putting enough capital back into banks to be able to support that kind of lending again. And so unless the flow of securitizations is restored, um, we're going to see a credit crunch the likes of which we've never experienced before. Um, yet until this proposal, there's been almost no talk of restoring the flow of securitizations, even though I think it's at least as essential as restoring the flow of bank lending. 
I think there are a couple points here that are worth making. Um, first of all, the Obama administration so far seems to favor two tools. One is the use of taxpayer money to essentially replace private sector debt with public sector debt. And the second is regulatory fiat, putting regulators in place to tell performers in the private sector what they must do or face regulatory consequences. It's our belief that if you want to restore confidence in the market, the best way to do that is to facilitate the use of market forces. So from our perspective, there's a way with no taxpayer money required and with no new regulatory regime for the government to facilitate the creation of a body that will assure that in the case of certain securitizations, the information presented to end investors is absolutely consistent with the underlying attributes of the asset. If that can be done in the private sector in a way that brings back confidence, what the government has now done is facilitated the restoration of an efficient capital market without a need for new fiat and without a need for new government spending. And that's a very, very important part of what we think must happen if we're going to finance growth in the economy going forward. And I think uh, just to reemphasize what Dick said, there's a sense of urgency here. If we want the economy to come out of a recession, private sector capital has to be available in efficient ways so that borrowers can get access to the credit they need. I think there's another aspect to the point Alan's just made. Um, first, um, it isn't just the securitization agents who've lost a lot of credibility. It's the regulators. Um, and so having a new regulatory fiat is not necessarily going to instantly restore credit. Uh, credibility. But I think beyond that, one has to think about the world capital market. And the G20, um, and indeed the Obama proposal, uh, urges each individual nation to uh, develop their own uh, more stringent regulations for credit rating agencies. The European Union is already a long ways down this road. And uh, they've developed a double registration system that will require anyone rating securities that will be bought by Europeans to register in a home country and to register with CSER, which is the coordinating agency among securities agencies. Um, if they come up with a different set of standards, uh, and as they quite plausibly will, than uh, other regulators in other countries, you're going to have a fragmentation of a world capital market that by and large has served us really very well. I think one of the great advantages of um, the voluntary program that, that Alan alluded to is that if there is a market solution, you don't need to involve um, elaborate negotiations among governments, um, uh, the uh, superior standards will simply dominate because those are the standards that will appeal to investors who are concerned. Um, one thing that I think is very important, again, is the multiplicity of service providers. When you approach things with regulatory fiat, you focus only on certain service providers. The administration so far is focusing primarily on the banks and the underwriters. A more voluntary approach can also include lawyers, it can include accountants, and very importantly, it will influence the rating agencies to a much greater extent. The other point that I think is, is, is also um, very relevant here is that we've seen in the past that when you deal with regulatory fiat, regulators change their minds overnight. And when they do, it affects the entire system dramatically. So one example is that a few years back, in an overnight change, Large investment banks were allowed to lever their balance sheets dramatically more than the day before. We now know we paid a very severe price for that. So if we put by regulatory fiat, 
limits on the behaviors of certain people in the securitization system, in the future when things are good, they're going to go back to the regulators and ask for forbearance and things will change radically overnight and perhaps in a not very well thought out way. Market disciplines tend to evolve more and not move as dramatically. Uh, coming back to your suggestion of creating a voluntary body and a market-based solution, uh, who would create this body and how how would it uh, help solve the problems the markets are facing today? Could you explain that in a little more detail? One of the really wonderful things about this is that the service providers themselves would benefit from this. The securitization market right now is more abundant. There are no new securitizations getting done. Every service provider still has a large staff of talented people who spent the last decade earning a very good living by providing these types of, of, of services. Now, a few, in a few cases, perhaps we don't want those people to do it going forward because they misbehaved, but the vast majority of them were hardworking, honest, and diligent. Uh, they'd like nothing more than to have all be gainfully employed again. So if you can create confidence, the demand for the loans is there, the capital is there on the other side, but the investors don't have the confidence to buy the instruments. If everyone in the process cooperatively were to work together, then we can create a very vibrant market again, and everyone will profit from that, and the economy will grow. So it will be to everyone's best interest. It's very hard, though, to get the critical momentum to get all these different people working on new rules. And that's the role that the government needs to play here. They simply need to be a facilitator to organize this process. Yeah, I think it... it is quite true that as a piecemeal process, it probably won't work. But um, the role of government uh, need not be one of providing funds, as we've stressed, but it, it probably should be one of designating the structure of the committee so that it it actually reflects the full range of stakeholders in the securitization process. And I would say probably weights the interests of investors a little more heavily than those of others. Um, and um, at the same time gives them, I think, uh, two clear objectives that have been missing. One is to improve transparency and the other is to align the actions of each agent with the interests of the final investor. And that will probably involve linking compensation to each of the agents to the outcome to the final investor. Um, but um, that's about all they need to do. Um, and uh, I, I would suggest that um, securitizations that, that meet those standards um, be differentiated from other kinds of securitizations, which may go on, um, with um, we used uh, Alan's clever acronym STAR, which stands for the. Um, I always have trouble with the actual uh, name, but uh, Washington's full of acronyms, so it would work well there. The, the, uh, the STAR acronym was the Securitization Transaction Approval Review Process, and it would be a set of standards that uh, each STAR approved. Uh, securitization would have to meet. And um, presumably, investors would feel much more secure with them than with a normal securitization. And you might well have uh, good transactions driving up bad. I think there are a couple key points here, just to reemphasize a couple of Dick's points. The end investor is the key consumer in this process. At the end of the day, they should have very significant input as to what the best practices are that the star review process requires. When we get there, investors will have confidence. Could we get there piecemeal? Well, Dick said he didn't think we could. 
I think we probably could, but it would take more years than we want to wait. We don't want to have a recession that goes on for years while we wait for this to happen piecemeal. There's a way to make it happen much more quickly. If you bring together the universe of investors and say, what do you need to rely on? What do you need to know? And take that information and create a best practices review process such that it is certified that those practices went on for any securitization that gets the approval of this committee, now you have a product that works. Will other products work as well? Perhaps in the future. But in the short run, this would radically alter capital flows. uh, We were talking about the rating agencies, and I'd love to get your reaction on something that I heard just last month in an interview with Neil Kashkari uh, after he stepped down as as the head of the Office of Financial Stabilization. uh, somebody asked him a question about the ratings agencies and yes. how their credibility had been completely compromised. Uh, his answer was that when you look at ratings agencies, he looks at them very much at the way he looks at sell-side research. Uh, and, and, and essentially his point, I think, was that you've got to know how these rating agencies are compensated, where their money comes from, where their incentives lie, and, and, and you basically treat it for what it's worth. Uh, is, do you think, first of all, so two questions. I think, One, that's, I think that's a false analogy. Uh, do, do you think that's, uh, uh, that was my first question. The second question is, uh, uh, how would the star system uh, you know, o- overcome that issue? Well, first of all, I think it's a false analogy because no government regulation that I'm aware of makes use of the ratings of sell-side analysts. Yet we have a plethora of government ratings that depend on the rating agencies. The rating agencies, in a sense, uh, several government departments have outsourced credit analysis to rating agencies. Now, um, ratings agencies grew up in the United States. Um, They were actually originated here because we started corporate bond markets. Uh, Before that, there were certainly bond markets, but they were usually sovereign markets, and sovereign markets – um, uh, as long as the sovereign was dealing in their own currency, we're pretty secure. Um, but we financed infrastructure in the U.S., largely railway bonds with uh, corporate money. And um, there was a real demand for trying to figure out the good corporations from the bad corporations. And Moody started the first service um, just after the turn of the century. And um, then you had Standard & Poor's, and then Fichipka was is a, a latecomer. But these... Um, institutions were really very well aligned with investors because their revenue model was to sell manuals to investors. And it was um, a very straightforward business. They could make money as long as their ratings turned out to be credible. And it was um, based heavily on their reputation and maintaining their reputation. So their temptation to, to shave a rating or to, to alter something in favor of an issuer was negligible because it would, it would lose their business. Well, in the 30s, because of some bad experiences with corporations, a number of different players, including the controller of the currency briefly and including pension, state pension boards and uh, insurance companies and a number of other regulators, um, started to use ratings as a regulatory tool. And that immediately changed the kind of dynamic because now you had regulated institutions – essentially getting um, 
regulatory mandates as well as a rating. And uh, the, there was a pressure for grade inflation that you can see in the statistics over time. But it, it didn't seriously affect uh, the quality of the ratings. Uh, interestingly, the industrial structure was always that of an oligopoly. There were never more than two or three ratings agencies that were of any importance. Finally, in the 1970s, I believe it was, the um, SEC decided that if they were going to use ratings for regulatory purposes, they really ought to have a way of deciding whose ratings they should use. And so they developed the terminology and statistics for, or the, the criteria for nationally recognized statistical, statistical ratings organization. organizations, yes. which is always a mouthful to say. <laughs> and um, it was quite circular. Um, how did you become a nationally recognized statistical rating organization? Well, you were nationally recognized, so that made it a little tough. Um, the, um, uh, but after a, a bit of time, they were uh, under a lot of pressure to um, try to make the market more competitive. Um, I think in, in some sense that is um, – it's always going to be something of an oligopoly, but I do think there was a, a misuse of uh, or a, a lack of attention to um, antitrust policy because um, I think one of the, the big losses or big missed opportunities during that time was when KPMV, which had a radically different way of rating corporate credit by using market prices and backing out corporate credit ratings – and I think was used by a number of institutions in preference to ratings because they, on the whole, turned out to be more accurate. Well, given that the ratings were regulatory, they used both. Yes. Um, that's true. Um, was acquired by Moody's and um, uh, it's no longer uh, an alternative rating. Um, so, Although the product is still sold and is still available. Oh, the and many banks still, still use it for risk management. If I can interrupt, I think one of the things that's very important to understand is that rating agencies simply produce ratings. The actual underlying risk of an instrument can't very easily be summed up in one or two or three letters. So what has happened to rating agency ratings is that they've become a little bit like pornography over time and that nobody can describe exactly what a triple A or a single A or a double B means, but we sort of know it when we see it. So you have this very interesting concept where we are regulating institutions based upon these letter grades that don't fully under, un, assess the underlying risk. And what makes that much, much worse and where the rating agencies really fell down in the world of securitization is that I can have a large number of separate investments that all have relatively good ratings be much riskier than other investments that have lower ratings but aren't as highly correlated, that provide better diversification. And the rating agencies never figured out how to communicate these diversification issues or even how to assess them very well in the world of securitization. So one of the problems was that the rating agencies chose to use these very same letters on securitization investments that they previously used on corporate bonds when in fast, fact the risks were radically different. I can, I can give you an example of just how different they were. The absolute worst year we had for corporate bond downgrades and they're usually measured in terms of notches, pluses to minuses and so forth. If you look at the three notch or greater downgrades for corporate bonds, the worst year was 2001. We had Enron, we had WorldCom, we had uh, Argentina, the largest country default in history. 
um, there were virtually no discernible um, triple-notch downgrades, except in the below-investment-grade area, where everybody expects things to be volatile, and it's not, not alarming. But if you look at um, the year 2007-2008 for structured products, you'll find that of the triple-B-rated uh, securitizations, 68% were downgraded three notches. Now, if you're an institution required to hold investment-grade securities, that is fatal because that takes you below investment grade and um, shows that there's something very, very different in the, the nature of your ratings. Uh, it would have been helpful to use a different symbol. The SEC, in fact, suggested that they do that, um, but the industry convinced them not to. So uh, in January or December, I've forgotten which it was last year, they um, decided to duck all of the far-ranging proposals, which might have helped, like taking readings out of regulation and uh, like having different scales for uh, different kinds of, of risk, um, and went for what looks like um, low-hanging fruit, said that, that ratings agencies should separate um, uh, the uh, consulting business from the ratings business. Now, that to me is a phony issue because the whole nature of ratings is bringing different packages to the reader and having him tell you what they are. I don't see how that differs from consulting. It's just a serial process. But it made everybody feel they'd done something and uh, that was supposed to fix it. So to summarize, there are really two key issues vis-a-vis -vis the rating agencies. And if we want to establish confidence in a securitization process, both these issues have to be dealt with. Um, one is this alignment of incentives. Uh, Dick pointed out that the ratings agencies currently in their revenue model have a fairly, fairly serious conflict in how they're incented. And uh, in the world of securitization, I, we think that needs to change. I think I forgot to explain how that happened. Uh, selling manuals worked perfectly well till the introduction of the Xerox machine. And uh, after the Xerox machine was in introduced in the early 70s, that revenue model simply fell apart. And of course, the other side of it is, is the regulatory implication of ratings became more important. It became much easier for the rating agencies to demand more and more money from issuers. And in fact, they became a very lucrative business. Um, but the second issue with the rating agencies has to do with transparency. We can't simply rely on a letter or a number or a number of stars. We have to understand how they went about doing their analysis, what assumptions were made, what quantitative models were used so that we can have a better sense of what the risk of massive downgrade is. So perhaps the rating is correct today as to what the probability is, but how much can things change in the future? And uh, I think that all these things are quite doable. Um, but the rating agencies need to be incented to move in this direction by having an opportunity to do business. Uh, if you were to look uh, five years out uh, and, and then look back to, in, in retrospect, what, is, what does the future face of securitization look like to you? I think it will be much simpler. Um, part of the problem is that securitization got incredibly baroque so that it it literally took people who were serious about doing their homework uh, a week or more to get back to the underlyings and even make a, a decent forecast of how much uh, the the tranche they held was worth um, 
so I, I would guess that they will be much simpler, much more transparent, much more straightforward. And um, that model worked perfectly well for a very long time. I agree. I think the key is that securitization is a tool. The ends are to allow borrowers to get the credit they need on terms and prices that are reasonable and to allow investors to invest in instruments that meet their risk needs in a fashion that they can evaluate those risks and have confidence that the risks that they think they're taking are the risks they are actually taking. So that's why simplicity is important. That's why transparency is important. And most importantly, it's why the alignment of incentives of everyone involved in the process is quite crucial. And again, to reemphasize, this can all be done without taxpayer money, and, and it can all be done successfully in the private sector. And I think this is a time when uh, there is a strong enough mutual interest among all the players in the securitization process and restarting the game that uh, it really could be accomplished relatively quickly. I have one last question for each of you, and that is to ask you to imagine that at this table along with the three of us, there is a fourth chair and that President Obama is sitting there. And if you were to give him one piece of advice about what he needs to do to get things back on track to restore confidence, uh, what would that piece of advice be? Well, I think sometimes less is more. Uh, I, and uh, it strikes me that with regard to uh, the thrust into the financial system at this point, uh, there's way too much expenditure of taxpayer money. Um, way too little uh, emphasis on market discipline, in fact, undermining market discipline in many cases. Uh, and I guess of the, the um, whole stack of proposals that is in the white paper, the most important one to implement, and it's only sketched in the vaguest of terms, is a way to resolve any institution, no matter how large it is, without intolerable spillovers. Because unless you can do that, the taxpayer is held hostage to any institution that is too big, too interconnected, too internationally complex to fail. And I think we've established we can no longer afford to do that. I would suggest that the president faces a remarkable host of challenging economic problems. Some of them can only be solved by using taxpayer money to prime the pump. Some can only be solved through regulatory fiat. Whenever there is an opportunity to use free market forces and to incent participants in the free market to solve their own problems, that's a terrific way to go. And we should look for those every place we can. Uh, Dick, Alan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.